You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. There is something about getting in front of um, people and like preparing to share the word that just brings back all sorts of random memories that you completely forgot about and locked out of your mind. So I played uh, saxophone, tenor saxophone, in my high school jazz band. And one time we got to open up for the jazz ensemble at Northern Illinois University. Well, yeah, what's up? Which, at the time, was directed by the esteemed jazz saxophonist and educator, Professor Ron Carter. Now, so, you know, we got up, we did our thing, I was playing my, tenor sa- my little tenor saxophone, went back into the stands, and I used band came up. Um, and there was, in that band, um, a young female tenor saxophonist playing lead tenor. You know, she did a solo, she featured on one piece, and Professor Carter turns around afterwards, looks out into the crowd, um, in generally my sort of vague direction, and he just, like, um, you know, introduced the tenor saxophone soloist, and he's like, you know, I saw that guy, you know, making eyes at the tenor saxophone souls over there, like, hold off till after the show, all right? Um, and so I, like, turn around to my friends, like, oh, yeah, that's pretty funny. It's like, look at this guy trying to play matchmaker. And as I'm turning around, my friend's kind of laughing at it. Uh, Professor Carter points directly at me and says, not tenor man, I'm talking to you. Don't be looking at your other friends now, passing this off. Um, so, like... Maybe when it's on the internet, it's a different story like we so often are, and maybe when we're dealing with someone who knows us well, um, but maybe has a tendency to be like passive-aggressive, it's a different story. Like There's all sorts of other use cases um, in which we could read it differently. But I would say in general, as humans, for the most part, if we are presented with a message directed at a large group of people, particularly if it's one calling us wrong or misguided or foolish or inappropriately making eyes at a tenor saxophone player, um, we'll sometimes fall into that mentality of, this isn't directed at me, like it's directed at somebody else. We're getting somebody else's mail. And when we're presented with a passage like the one Nick just read to us, um, the king of kings riding into Jerusalem, all powerful, all glorious, on the colt of a donkey, we look at that and we say, okay, clearly this is for someone else. We aren't supposed to be getting this message. When we look, and when we look at the same King of Kings a week later um, being executed on a cross be- despite having committed no crime, we get, okay, I'm missing some context here. This must have been for someone else. Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been investigating the servant songs of Isaiah. Right, a series of literary works that seek to um, discuss a little bit more, more intensely what the future of Israel at the time will look like um, prior to their conquest from Assyria. But more importantly, we see we're introduced to God's servant, right? Someone who, and we've seen this throughout the first three servant songs that we've looked at, he's on a mission, right? He's going to restore nations. He's going to bring justice to God's people, um, He's going to lead us to a position of repentance. And at the time, right, when the people of Israel hearing this, the people of Israel hearing Isaiah prophesy these things, um, they basically had two, one of two positions on this, right? This is for us broadly as a nation, um, and we are going to take political power and might over the Assyrians um, and conquer all. Or there's another contingency of people who said, no, nah, wait, this isn't for us. 
This is just some crazy man walking along. We left God behind some time ago. But what we're going to see in, the, but today when we look at this fourth and final servant song, it's going to do a couple things for us, right? It's going to go through all the other servant songs and, and recontextualize them in a really powerful way. Um, it is going to prevent us from depersonalizing the work of the servant. It's going to make clear exactly how and, and why and what the servant is going through all this suffering for, what the servant is seeking this justice for. Um, and it is not broad political gain. Um, this isn't a movement. Um, it's not just for the time. But what, what we're going to see is that God's work here is for relational reconciliation. Right? He is seeking, he's seeking like closeness with his people. Um, the power is already his. The glory is already his. He's got so many other things in mind. And what's more, he has them in mind for you and for me. So let's dive into our passage real quick. But first, um, I'm going to pray. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us through um, the words of your servant, Isaiah. Um, thank you for how they have illustrated what you've done um, for the people of Israel and what that means for what your son um, has done on the cross and is doing um, for your people today. Um, Lord, as we receive new context um, for, your, for your work through the servant and through Jesus, um, let it speak to us in, on a very personal level, Lord. Um, let it invite us um, to respond to it and to be convicted by it. Um, and if there's anything I say this morning um, that takes us in a wrong direction there or takes us in a distracting direction there, um, please remove it from my mouth and remove it from the ears of um, the people with me today. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So our fourth servant song is weird for a couple of reasons, right? Because first of all, um, what you probably notice as you're going through it is that it is sort of spread across two different chapters um, in the Bible, which none of the other servant songs we've looked at um, have been doing. Now, on one hand, um, you know, the chapter divisions and the, and the section headings and other things other than the actual text of Scripture are not inspired, so it doesn't help us necessarily to go in and read too much into how chapters and verses and, and stanzas are, are separated and split out. Um, but I, sh I think this should draw our attention um, to what these first three verses of the song do for us. And I'm going to read those um, with you. We're going to be in Isaiah 52, um, starting in verse 13, if you have a Bible and want to read along. Isaiah 52 verse 13, and the words will be up on the screen um, behind me as always. But let's just take a look at these first three verses here that start before most of the rest of the song. So he said, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which he has not been told them, they see. And for that which they have not heard, they understand. So broadly what we need to understand about this um, is that it's a prologue to the servant song that we're going into, right? We've, we've understood where the servant is coming from, what he's there to do, and how he's there to do it. Um, 
this serves as kind of a, a progressive spoiler alert. It said, okay, if you still aren't clear on what the servant is here to do um, and that he will be successful, let me, let me just spoil this for you. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah and saying, it's done. It is fixed in the course of human history. The servant does what he's here to do. He restores nations. He brings justice to God's people. Um, he, he, he repairs the gap between God and his people. It's here. And it's not happening in the way that you think it might be happening. I'm gonna get, we're going to get into concretely what that looks like. But we start out kind of understanding that like our expectations are about to get majorly subverted. And there are two ways in which God makes that clear for us. So the first thing that's worth noting about God's plan for restoration specifically here, um, which is kind of what these first three verses center around, is the appearance of the servant as he's suffering. So we spent a lot of, last week Alan brought us through the suffering servant, started getting into some of the darker, um, grittier descriptions of what the servant will go through as he's accomplishing the work of the Lord. And here we get even more details. In verse 14, we read, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So when we read that, it's almost kind of looking like, you know, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, as in he was so beaten up and battered and scarred and bruised um, that he no longer looked human. But there are some critiques there are some sort of commentators um, and scholars on the Bible who might even say, like, his appearance before the bruising was so marred that we didn't recognize him as human, right? This is clearly not one of us. This is not going to be a human political power. And the second thing that comes up as weird, and this, I understand this came up in a lot of small group discussions, um, is this verse 15 here. So he shall sprinkle many nations... Oh, that's nice, Jesus. You're going to sprinkle some nations for us. What does sprinkle many nations mean? Right, so, you know, there are some who suggest that, well, he's just going to scatter many nations, and he's, go he's going to distribute the power that's, you know, that's currently in place, um, just geographically, you know, distribute it. But then why not say scatter, right? And there are still other commentators um, who suggests that Jesus is going to startle the power structures in place, right? He's going to jolt them awake. He's going to bring new life and new awakeness to nations who have been, who have been oppressed by the Assyrians and other enemies of the Lord. But why not just say scatter then? And then there's sort of, but then there's sort of this third um, in-between kind of like in-between understanding of the word sprinkle here um, that justifies the word sprinkle over some of these more concrete things, right? So at this time, power um, among God's people is very centralized, right? So it looks just like an amorphous... I did not bring any sand. I was not that well prepared. But it looks just like an amorphous um, blob of salt here, blob of sand, right? We need to disrupt this, right? We can't do anything with this blob of sand. We need to restore it. And if I just gently try and transfer it over um, to the hand of God, um, such that the enemies are no longer in place, well, it still looks like an amorphous blob of sand. It's still centralized. Um, and there's nothing seeking out, there, there's no 
reaching the power out to the lost, um, among other areas. But if I give it a little jolt, it goes flying, and then it sh if it, there's, there's shapes that form on the ground. They're difficult to tell, but all of a sudden we see nations. We see the power distributed across the floor, right? And I am going to clean this up, by the way. That's what the broom is there, no worries. Make for a nice little sound effect thing, <laughs> right? But we fundamentally changed the shape of the salt, right? It's not a mound. Now it's a network. It's a constellation of God's influence and power over the world. Good. <laughs> and I think this is fundamentally different to what we were expecting, right? Because when we see something that's, we, when we see that God's going to restore something, um, we might assume that he's just going to just put everything back, right? He's going to take what's broken and he's going to put it back exactly um, the way it was before, right? There's actually a form of Japanese pottery or an art of Japanese pottery um, called kintsugi, right? That is based on this exact philosophy, right? It's where pottery is intentionally shattered uh, and broken into pieces. Um, and then you take hot wax and you literally glue it back together. And the aesthetic statement is that there is something powerful and beautiful in something broken being put, it back, to put back together um, in some semblance of the way it was. But when we look at this passage and when we look at what God is after, we can understand that it will only ever be a semblance of what it was, right? That's not restoration. So what God is interested in doing is he's going to create something entirely new. When we go back and look at the passage, we're bombarded um, with ways that God is going to change some magnitudes of power in Israel through the servant, right? He's not just interested in, in making them look different, right? We see that he's going to sprinkle many nations. We see that kings shall shut their mouths because of them, like, and the Hebrew translation of the kings will shut their mouths because of him um, is very harsh, right? He's going to shut them right up. He is going to make them take several seats, as I believe they say on Twitter. He's going to cancel them, deplatform them. And the things that they will see and the things that they will understand, they will not receive from, even, from earthly sources, right? God has no interest in setting things back the way they were. Instead, God is going to restore the nations and restore his people by renewing them. And that's the first thing he wants to make clear, right? The work of the servant is not just a change, it's a complete renewal. And it's a renewal that can happen um, inside people, not just inside nations or inside of political power structures. So we're going to transition now to the middle part um, of the servant song. There's quite a bit of, honestly, if you, if you go through this, um, every single section and stanza of this song um, creates a beautiful image of, like, making very clear that the servant refers to Jesus, right? That this is a retelling of the gospel truth, um, preparing us for the work of Jesus on the cross. Um, our other speakers in this series have already covered that ground excellently, so I'm just going to focus on how um, Isaiah sort of recontextualizes the servant's work for us as people rather than for us as, as a political group, right? Or, or a, geo, a geocultural group. Um, and what we're going to see in this middle part of the poem is that there's a shift going on, right? So for these first few servant songs, as well as the first part of this one, we've seen God kind of take center stage. 
God is introducing us to his servant. God is illuminating the work of his servant for us through Isaiah. Um, and we're seeing this through kind of his perspective, letting us in behind the curtain. Um, but in this middle section of the poem here, Isaiah kind of takes a break from that. The tone changes. The perspective changes. Now we're looking at something a little bit more reflective, almost a little bit more like a commentary. So this is Isaiah speaking directly to Israel themselves. He's not prophesying future events that are to come, at least not as directly as he has been. So let's take a look at these together, right? We're going to start, we're going to jump to verse four here. He's in the middle of describing the servant, um, recapping some of the suffering that he's gone over um, in the last few servant songs. Because it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pure. Oh, I'm sorry, there's verse three up there too. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So what do we do with some of this, right? We see powerful image of the ways that he, he, is, he has suffered, but then we see these paired statements, right? We see suffering matched with a result for the people of Israel. He bore our grief and sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, but with his wounds we are healed. And with his wounds we are healed. So I want to take us back to a couple weeks ago, um, when Michael Doring brought us through the servant's mission for justice for God's people. And, for, and I think the first thing to notice is, like, by the human form of justice, does that sound like justice? The servant has to get wounded, stricken by God, afflicted for our sins, and yet we have to be healed, and yet we get to be healed. So there's a first sign here, um, that the justice we have in mind is not justice like with, with regards to Israel enemies, Israel's enemies, right? There's something else going on. If we think for a minute about what the audience for this servant song would have been like. So Israel, again, was in one of two different camps at this point with relationship to God, right? You, you have one contingency that still holds pretty closely to following God, but at this point, he's just kind of a formality. He's a political power. Um, and the salvation and the hope that these people are looking for, um, they're looking for in a human figure, right? They, they understand that God will be behind them, but they're not actually looking to God for the solution to this conquest. Then you have another set of people who have just straight up abandoned God, right? It's still part of the, the cultural tradition that, that they know, but they have already turned away to sorcery and wise men um, and all sorts of, of worldly figures. They've grown arrogant. They've grown confident. They've lost the humility um, 
that following that that God bring them out of the desert all those years ago has instilled in them, and they're like, no thanks, God, we'll take it from here. Right? But both of these groups, unified, would have read this passage and seen a lot of alarm bells go off. Right? So look at the way that Isaiah describes the servant suffering in here. And this is one of probably the most famous passage of the four servant songs, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Probably the verse that gets read every Good Friday, every Easter service. Those are two very intentional word choices here. So I want to take us back to the book of Leviticus, one of the books of law in the, in the Pentateuch, and one of the five books of the Bible. Um, so in Leviticus 16, there is a description of the Day of Atonement. Um, so the Israelites, once, once a year, so on the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, um, Aaron, the Israelite high priest, or whoever was serving in that role at the time, um, we see that it's Aaron um, as the Day of Atonement is being described, uh, was sent to make atonement for the people of Israel in the most holy place uh, in the tabernacle. Other than that, no one had permission to enter that part, um, to enter God's presence so directly. Um, but once a year, that was something that Aaron was called to do, and he had very specific instructions, um, a list of instructions for how that took place. Right? And I'm not going to read the entire account, but in summary... Um, one of the few, or sort of one, one of the instructions that Aaron received was taking two goats from the congregation, um, cast lots, dedicate one of them to God, um, and, one, and that goat would be killed as a sin offering for the people of Israel. But then he received instructions for the other goat. Um, that goat would be cast to Azazel, who... We are given a lot of context for what that means, but it's understood to be sort of a spirit of emptiness, a spirit of depletion. Um, cast off not as a sacrifice, but as, a, as an acknowledgement that um, we are emptied of this resource. Right? We are alone in the wilderness. So if we look at the next slide, we see what happens. The one, we, we have the one goat um, killed as a sin offering, but then Aaron lays both his hands on the head of the live goat and confesses over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is an off-mist um, part of the system of, of sacrifice and atonement that was part of the law of God's people until Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. Right, so frequently we hear mention of sacrifice. We hear mention of blood sacrifice, like an animal must be killed in some, rich, in, in some ritualistic way um, and its blood used to atone, um, to substitute in for the blood of God's people, right? Because of our sinful natures, desert like, the just thing would be that it's our blood that gets spilled. And so we see that repeated all throughout the Old Testament and even all throughout the New Testament as we refer back to um, Jesus' blood being the new covenant that, we, that gets spilled um, instead. But what we don't see is this, is this second goat. We don't see the part where, as a result of our sin, we have to be alone. 
We are in the wilderness, completely without presence, completely depleted of all good things that come with being in the presence of the Lord and being well with him. And so what we see with the servant have, and like this, this reference to transgressions and iniquities and those being placed on the head of the servant, they would have instantly tied the servant to the second goat. To the second goat that we can't possibly atone for. Because if we're dead, we can't be out in the wilderness. And if we're out in the wilderness, we can't be dead. Right, so this brings us now to finally what we're missing in God's view of justice. God's justice is complete. So we looked back in the we looked and I I'm sorry. We looked back in the passage, we saw two Yeah, if we if we look at the next slide, we've we've got a little bit of imagery here. Um, we don't see goats, but we see lambs. Right, so all we like sheep are go have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's fine. But then we also see Jesus compared to both a sheep and a lamb. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So what's going on with 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 the sheep imagery here? Um, so I, th I believe last year um, when we went over this passage or a similar one, we had uh, Leah Norcross, who formerly um, worked with sheep on a farm growing up, let us know that sheep were not like the smartest creatures. Do I remember that correctly, Leah? That's <laughs> uh, so one of their categorizing features, right? They're just kind of along for the ride. They're just kind of vibing. They don't necessarily understand what's going on with them in any given moment. And that's the whole reason shepherds are a thing, right? Sheep need to be led from one direction to another. But there's something unique um, in the Hebrew word from which we get lamb, right? There's a, there's a cultic connotation to the word lamb. There's a ritual connotation to the word lamb. The lamb is being directed towards fulfilling a specific purpose. So Jesus makes himself a sheep. He joins us as sheep. But he doesn't have he doesn't have our passivity. He he doesn't have the weight of sin is not above his head. He knows what he's getting into. He's called into it, and he goes there with obedience. He's led into the wilderness. He's led to give his life as a substitution for our sins. The servant needs to be both goats as he's suffering here. So every part of the price of sin needed to be paid. Because what we miss is that God's justice isn't based on catharsis like ours. It's complete. It is holistic. And what do I mean by that, right? How often do we judge how just something is by how good it makes us feel? Or by how um, righteous or progressive or altruistic towards others? Like I think Michael even shared the example like, Someone with a worse work, worse work ethic lost an opportunity to continue working. That's justice. The Nazi got punched. That's justice. The person I don't like got imprisoned or deplatformed on Twitter. That's justice. 
But it doesn't actually fix the injustice, right? It just takes away the part of it that we see or the part of it that makes us upset. But God sets out to get rid of all of it. All of our sin, all of our iniquities, and all of our transgressions need to go away. There's even, um, yeah, Michael read to us last time, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And we see this completion like in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, when Jesus was on earth in his ministry. Um, he shares the parables of the two, de- of, of the two debtors. Right? We've, got the fir- we've got the first debtor unable to pay a, mil- million, a debt of millions and millions of dollars to his master. Um, and so his master ordered that the debtor be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned. And it was only by the mercy of the master that he was not in prison, that he, wasn't, that he didn't go to jail. God's justice is complete and comprehensive. It's holistic. It's not driven by outer status symbols. It's not cathartic. It's not just what makes us feel good. It's what draws us all the way to him. We're going to take a look now at the last part of the song. Again, there's, we're skipping over some things. Um, there's lots of beautiful language here that, that gets more into the suffering, that... Um, drives this point home a little bit more, that Jesus was alone in the wilderness in addition to being physically hurt. Um, The psychological torment um, is discussed for a lot of the next verses, but for the sake of time, I'd like to take a look at the last three. So starting in verse 10, Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. For the transgressors. So a few things we can point out here, like if we still aren't getting it, God is, pouring, is, is spelling it out as clearly as it possibly can be. First of all, we are clearly identified as the transgressors. And by we, I mean the people of God, not necessarily... Um, us in this room, right? But those who have lost a personal connection with the Lord. We also see something that can be a little bit disturbing. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush the servant. Some translations even um, replace that with, it was the pleasure of the Lord to crush the servant and put him to grief. What we understand from that is that This was the Lord's doing, right? This was not a human rising up, empowered by the Lord. The Lord had this in the plan from the very start. And what we see that because the servant was capable of being both goats, because he was able to pour out his blood, the will of the Lord prospered in his hand. 
right? It was finally Jesus, as Alan told us last week, who was the only one capable of fully reconciling us to God and fully receiving knowledge of the Lord and of his righteousness. What we can understand is wellness in the Lord and triumph in the Lord was never possible for Israel by itself. There was never the war hero coming. There was never the new king who would set out to triumph. And by the same token, it's never re- wellness in the Lord and triumph in the Lord is never really possible for us on our own. Right? Jesus alone received the knowledge of this suffering, and therefore Jesus alone received the knowledge of the Lord's righteousness. And therefore Jesus alone splits the spoils of the Lord's victory with us. And that's what that word at the end means, by the way. Um, you might have discussed this in your small groups, and you might not. We, um, we have that word intercession. The servant makes intercession for the transgressors. Because this personalizes repentance in a way that I think is really powerful. Um, it prevents us from turning it into an episodic thing where we can just say, I believe in the Lord. Um, I believe that he forgives my sins and being done. So what we mean by intercession, um, it's sort of a going between in a social sense, going back and forth between. So because we cannot suffer as the servant suffered, we cannot have, right, we cannot have knowledge of righteousness as the servant had. Um, Israel was always going to be lost. But what they did have was a servant who now could run between them and the Lord. Right? Only the suffering service was victorious enough to be able to traverse that gap. Partially because he had suffered enough, but partially because it was established. He was also among us. He was numbered with us as the transgressors. He was numbered with us as sheep. There was nothing we did. There was nothing Israel did. There was no triumph of political power. It was the triumph of the Lord's will. That ultimately brought us sanctuary, brought us righteousness, brought us repentance. So when we look at these three parts of the servant song, when we understand that the Lord's restoration was disruptive, the Lord's justice was complete, and the Lord's will triumphing was already set into motion from the start and had nothing to do with any of us personally. How do we then look at Jesus riding into town on a donkey and say that message is for us, right? Well, we can understand that Jesus wasn't riding into Jerusalem to gain or wield power. He already had that. He wasn't there to display glory and majesty. He already had that too. This wasn't going to be a triumph of political will, but of God's will. Jesus rode into town on a donkey because he, it was already known that God wins in the end. It's the same takeaway that Nick brought us into the series with. Jesus rode into town on that donkey to disrupt our human power. And more specifically, to disrupt the power that sin and evil has on our lives. Not the political well-being of our nation. He has no need for those boundaries. But the power of sin has on your life and my life. A sin that was completely invisible to us, that we never would have noticed, and that God would have been perfectly within his right to leave unchecked 
But that's not what he wanted. That's not the kind of God he is. He wanted to know and love the ones he had created and called good. And so he sent down his son in human form. And by the way, this son was fully aware of all these servant songs of Isaiah when he sat in the Garden of Gethsemane the, the night before he was crucified. Like, Jesus had spent his, study, his childhood studying the scriptures. And I can only imagine how painful it must have been to, like, internalize these works that are looking forward to him and that ascertain how much he is going to suffer as an adult doing the work of his father. And how dreadful that makes that time in Gethsemane that, we'll, that we will spend time reflecting on um, this Friday at our Good Friday service, begging the Father to at least compromise somewhat on this plan, somewhat on this work, so that the piercing and the wounding and the bleeding doesn't need to come to pass. But in spite of all knowing all that, Jesus went through it. So how do we, we respond to someone like that? We really have no choice but to draw near to him. Making a personal choice to accept the complete justice of God and our inability to come near to it on our own. In short, we really have no choice but to worship him. I'm going to pray and then we're going to invite the band up to do that with us together.